This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquariumania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin, Florida. Thanks for joining us. Killifish are beautiful, small-bodied fish found in many areas around the world, including the Americas, Africa, Asia, and Europe. They are one of the aquarium industry's hidden gems, with only some of the hundreds of brightly colored species sold in local aquarium shops. Some of them live in tiny puddles of water where their eggs must survive dry periods. One species can reproduce literally on its own from just one fish. All have fascinating life histories. Our guest today, Charlie Nunziata, has been an active aquarium hobbyist for more than 45 years. Charlie is a lifelong member of the American Killifish Association, through which he has been awarded numerous honors. He has also founded local societies in New York and Florida, and is currently a Board of Trustees member and chair of the Killifish Conservation Committee. He also is very active with the North American Native Fishes Association. Join us as Charlie teaches us more about the fascinating and unique killifish and where you can find them. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Charlie Nunziata, a fish head colleague of mine and, and well-known killifish expert. Hi, Charlie. Thanks again for joining us. How are you doing, guys? Good afternoon. So I know, you know, I've known you for a number of years, and, and you've been so active with so many different parts of the, of the, the hobby. And I, I've known your, uh, about your killifish expertise for so many years. I'm glad I actually finally get a chance to kind of talk with you and, and have our listeners learn more from you as well. So killifish, a lot of folks really don't know too much about killifish, especially the folks that really haven't done too much with the hobby or just starting. So what, what are killifish? Uh, the group uh, uh, known as killifish uh, uh, belong to a, uh, a very large uh, group of freshwater fishes and, uh, and also include a small number of saltwater fishes. Uh, they're technically uh, oviparous uh, tooth carps, uh, cypinodontiforms, and uh, and there's several families uh, uh, throughout the world. They occur on all continents uh, except Antarctica and Australia. Uh, there's about 1,300 recognized species right now, and there's hundreds of sub- subspecies and distinct populations. 
the biggest family uh, is the Rivulidae, which consists of about three, 350 species. Um, uh, they are found in, uh, in virtually every kind of biotype, uh, from uh, deep jungle to savanna to uh, deep water courses, uh, rivers, streams, lakes. And there's almost no biotype that they don't inhabit. Uh, they're roughly uh, divided into two broad groups, which is based on their spawning habits. Um, they're the so-called plant spawners and the uh, so-called soil spawners, which indicates how they lay their eggs and what kind of media. But it's a lot more than that because each of those groups is quite different in their ecology and in their egg incubation and how the fry develop. Uh, it's, a, it's a major division um, uh, within that group. And, uh, and as a result of that uh, division, uh, uh, it dictates how the hobbyist keeps the fish and how they spawn the fish and how they propagate the fry. Um, the major groups in the, in the hobby are the, uh, are the African and South American groups. Uh, the plant spawners from Africa include Aphysimian and Epiplatis and related plant spawners. And the soil spawning genus uh, from Africa is Northobranchius. Uh, there's a soil-spawning species in South America as well, and, uh, and that was formerly known as the Sinolevius and Terolevius group, which has now been broken into many, many genera. Um, no one quite sure whether it's gone through uh, major revisions over the last 20, 20 or 30 years. Uh, there's also a like uh, plant-spawning group in uh, South America, Central America, and, and in North America. Um, as I mentioned, there's a small group of saltwater forms, which are really estuarine fish. Uh, some are full seawater, but most exist where fresh water enters the sea. And, they, and those occur primarily on the east coast of the United States and the Caribbean. So as you can see, it's a very, very broad group, and it inhabits just about every biotype there is. So where does the name come from? Uh, you know, some people probably see the, the name where I've heard kill, killifish. You know, where does killy actually come from and what does it mean? Yeah, a lot of people respond to that name thinking that the fish is aggressive, which it's not, <laughs> and that it kills other fish. Actually, it's from the Dutch uh, kill or kilda, and it refers to a small uh, creek or stream. So quite literally, it's a fish from a small uh, creek or stream. It's a Dutch word. Now... I know there are many hobbyists, either through the national or uh, some of the local groups, that keep killies. What makes them so unique in terms of, I guess, maybe even coloration? Are they are they colorful? Uh, yeah, they they are very very colorful fish, and uh, as a matter of fact, many of them will rival saltwater fish in both the coloration, the intensity of the coloration, the patterns that are available. Uh, they come in all kinds of forms. Uh, the predominant colors are blue, red, orange, and uh, and green. And uh, there's a multitude of uh, patterns, uh, everything from blotches and stripes to chevrons and, uh, and barring. Uh, it's, uh, as you would guess with a group this size, it exhibits uh, every different form of coloration, uh, fin structure, and patterning. So how big do these get? Uh, typically in the hobby, the fish that are in the hobby don't ex exceed six inches. They are typically between one and a half and six inches. There are some species that are very small under an inch, and there's some, a few species that get quite large, up to nine or ten inches, but those fish are generally not, not in the hobby. 
So from one and a half to about six inches is what you'll uh, likely to see. One thing I was curious about now, I'm sure you have quite a few uh, tanks yourself. How many how many different species of Achilles do you have in your own house or your own place? I've got about uh, uh, 16 to 20 species right now that I'm keeping uh, in, the, in a 60 tank uh, setup. Um, one of the... Uh, um, one of the characteristics of killifish that make it possible to have so many species and so few tanks is that they do very, very well in very, very small tanks. Almost all killifish, uh, four inches and under, can be bred in a two-and-a-half-gallon tank, for example, and will grow to full size in a tank that size. Um, and since we raised the fly, the fry separately from the parents, uh, we can keep many, many species in a very, very small space. Um, as a matter of fact, in Europe, where space is a premium, they don't have the kind of uh, housing, garages, and basements that we have. They can literally keep uh, uh, a number of species in their closet, and, and they're called closet fish rooms. And there's, uh, <laughs> there's interesting uh, photos from Germany and, and, and other countries in Europe where uh, people are, are keeping six, eight species in their closet. In the U.S. or among some of your colleagues, what's the most number of species that you've seen so far in someone's house? Well, we, uh, we, we have one of the largest breeders in the country right here in Florida. He lives in the Jacksonville area. His name is Ken Normandon, uh, and he's a, uh, an expert on ribulus uh, from Central South America, and he maintains about 400 aquariums, and, uh, and he has about 300 species, subspecies, and locations at that site. Uh, there's another fellow in upstate New York uh, who uh, maintains about the same number of aquariums, and he's a generalist. He has a, a species from all the different groups, and he maintains over 200 species. Um, I would say the average AKA member uh, will probably have between uh, 15 and 20 tanks and maintain six to eight uh, species, so, so that's not unusual. Wow, and, and the AK is the, of course, the American Killifish Association, right? Yeah, it's the American Killifish Association. Okay. Now, what what about their behavior? I know that some of them have, or a lot of them have, really interesting behavior. What are some of the kind of highlights of their behavior? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, their behavior and their and their spawning and incubation makes them quite unique. Um, uh, they uh, their generalized behavior is uh, um, they don't show any parenting. Uh, skills at all. As a matter of fact, they will consume fry and eggs if underfed. Uh, they don't defend territories. Um, they are not aggressive to, uh, to uh, non-coast specifics. Uh, they, they tend to be uh, very uh, quiet in, in uh, a uh, community tank. And the problem generally is because of their flamboyant fins and bright coloration, they are often the target of aggression by other fish. Uh, but they are not aggressive fish at all. Uh, they, their behavior uh, is much driven by their breeding uh, habits. So males, for example, will drive females to spawn, but they won't seek them out. Uh, so, uh, And the aquarium, even a small aquarium with some hiding spaces, will protect the female from uh, overindulgence by the male. They tend to be good feeders. Um, they can be trained to uh, to take a wide variety of foods. Uh, they tend to be uh, relatively disease-free, especially if the aquariums are kept very clean. And uh, and uh, contrary to, to popular opinion, all but the annual fishes 
live in excess of uh, anywhere from a year and a half to uh, up to five years. Uh, the annual fish, which is a very unique biology among fish, and we'll get into that in some detail, uh, they literally live one year, and in captivity, uh, they might live a bit longer, but, uh, but they're programmed to, uh, uh, to hatch, mature, spawn, and die within one year. And that has to do with the extreme biology that, uh, that they've adapted to, uh, to very, very difficult uh, natural conditions that they live in. Okay. Well, before we talk a little bit more about breeding, I guess getting back to some of the maintenance and uh, kind of housing and keeping questions, and you, you started talking about some of that. So if, if someone were keeping killies, is there sort of a general kind of requirement for that would cover many of them, or are there more specifics for some of the species? Uh, yeah, they, they are not particularly uh, difficult to maintain. Uh, they can adapt to a wide variety of uh, water conditions. Um, pH can be anywhere from about low sixes to the mid sevens. Uh, hardness can be from quite soft to uh, quite hard. Uh, and uh, and parts per million, anything from about 60 up to 300. Um, the uh, quality of the water and the chemistry of the water becomes a little more important if you're, if you're intending to breed them. There is uh, some small groups uh, among all the groups that have specific water conditions uh, that they prefer, very soft or very hard, but by and large, they, are, uh, they can generally be kept in, uh, in ordinary aquarium conditions. So you referred to the, I guess, the closet fish rooms or the closet fish keepers um, in some of the kind of the tanks that are being kept. What size tanks do you actually need for them? Um, what are kind of optimum sizes or what are sizes that are really, you know, well adapted for them? Uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, as I said, all but a few uh, species, uh, a breeding pair can be kept in a two and a half gallon aquarium, and they will uh, grow and breed in that environment. Up to five gallons, you really don't need uh, much larger than that for any of them, except the very, very large species, a few very large species. Uh, the fry can be grown first in two and a half, and then fives, and up to 10 gallons. Uh, I rarely put fry in anything larger than a 10 gallon tank. Um, and if you're raising a large group or want to maintain a large group of killies, then a 20 long is about the longest tank that you're going to need, about the largest tank you're going to need. So, so their physical requirements are not very uh, difficult. They don't require heaters uh, unless your room gets extremely cold. Uh, they can take uh, temperatures in, in the low 60s uh, without uh, becoming ill, and they can tolerate uh, temperatures up to about 80 degrees. I maintain my fish here in Florida in the garage, so I have to uh, uh, air condition the garage, and I keep it basically at 80 dur during the uh, during the summer, and I don't uh, heat it at all during the winter. So, so they can take a, a really wide range of conditions without difficulty. So, do most are most people using um, sponge filters, or what kind of filtration would would be the easiest for those? Well, it's really a personal preference. All kinds of filtration work well. Uh, sponge filters, small box filters. Uh, we rarely use power filters because they're not necessary, and the tanks are very small. Uh, but any of uh, either one of those uh, internal filters work well. Uh, there are some specialists that use uh, external uh, uh, filters, uh, wet-dry filters, but that's uh, not the norm, and it's really not required. So, just uh, your ordinary uh, sponge filter, your ordinary box filter, 
is fine in, in the tanks that we're talking about. Okay. Now, I guess the, the, the kind of cool thing, they're breeding. Now, you mentioned a couple things. You mentioned something about the top and bottoms, I mean, the, the plant spawners and the bottom spawners and the uh, annuals. Can you maybe give a, a real short summary of maybe some of that in a little sure, more? Yeah. Uh, um, yep. As a matter of fact, it's the, uh, it's the propagation of these fish that really make them unique. Uh, and the first thing that's uh, quite stunning uh, to, to the average hobbyist uh, that's not something with killing fish is that the eggs can be handled. They can be physically handled. They can be uh, picked from spawning media. They can be packed. They can be incubated. You can watch them incubate. You, uh, you can study the incubation cycle. You can pack them up in damp media. You can send them all over the world without difficulty. And, and that's quite unique uh, among aquarium fish. And it's one of the reasons why the hobby has persisted uh, the way it has over the years. Um, within that context, um, the, uh, uh, the breeding incubation, that whole biology, is driven by, uh, by the environment. Uh, one group of killies, the larger group, uh, are what's called plant spawning killies. That these are not annual fish. These are fish that are very much like all other tropical fish. They will lay their eggs in plant matter, floating, uh, rooted, submerged uh, in nature, and uh, and the fry, uh, uh, the eggs are not tended in any way. Uh, the fry hatch, and they're on their own. Um, the soil spawners are unique in the hobby in that they come from temporary bodies of water. In other words, uh, their habitat only exists for part of the year. Uh, in both South America and, and, and Africa, um, uh, the, uh, the biology involved is adapted to the rainy season and the dry season. When it rains, uh, temporary pools form. Uh, these fish are adapted to, to live in those pools, and in order to do that, they produce an egg that can go through the drying process that occurs after the pool uh, evaporates, incubates in a dry environment, and then hatches when the rains return. So in essence, uh, the uh, fish uh, hatches when it rains. It matures very, very quickly because the rains may stop very, very quickly. It spawns in the mud bottom of the temporary pool. The pool uh, dries out when the rain season ends. The eggs incubate in the muddy bottom, the dried muddy bottom. And when the rains come, some proportion of those eggs will be ready to hatch. And some will not. A, a part of the clutch will be ready for development at the normal rainy time and a part of the hatch will not be ready. It'll die a pause, it'll stop development. It goes into suspended animation. There's actually three stages that it does go through that it can die a pause. And those that are not ready to hatch will not hatch when rain comes, but will rather continue to develop at a much slower rate. There's reports of pools that have been dry for 10 years, and when it finally does rain, fish appear. So, so we know, for example, that these eggs can persist in this uh, in the state for many, many years. And, uh, and as a result of all of this knowledge, we simulate that environment when we try to breed them. And that's one of the most interesting parts of the hobby. Okay, well, I'm going to have to take a quick break before we go on and talk a little bit more about breeding and the kind of cool soil spawners. So let's take a short break to hear from our sponsors and then continue our discussion of Achilles with Charlie Nunziata right after these messages from our sponsors. 
It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. We're back in continuing our conversation with my guest, killifish expert, Charlie Nunziata. So, Charlie, you were kind of talking a little bit about the soil spawners and some dried pools of mud actually having fish return after 10 years. You know, that's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. So, I guess maybe talk us through a species of soil spawning killi and which you know what you would do to spawn them you know maybe give us an example maybe you know a little bit about the color and size and then and then kind of the process for spawning them okay um uh, there's a whole uh a bunch of very uh, uh very neat uh, things that happen as a result of this uh, environment as you can imagine a temporary pool of water in africa or south america is often visited by other creatures to drink so the water is completely roiled uh, at most times. It's uh, it's almost opaque. So uh, how do these fish function in an environment like that? Well, they develop very, very bright colors. And depending on the soil consistency, they'll either have a predominance of blue or a predominance of red. And red, for example, uh, the color red is transmitted through, uh, through opaque conditions much more efficiently than the color blue. And then uh, and other types of... Uh, of, uh, of environments, blue, the color blue transmits much better through these uh, uh, conditions. So in order for the fish to even find themselves, they've developed extremely bright colors. Uh, the uh, genus Northobranchius, uh, which is an East African annual group, uh, is divided into blue-finned and red-finned fish, the majority being red-finned. And these fins are very bright. They're very uh, uh, intensely either red or orange-red, and they're like a velvet uh, coloration, extremely beautiful. And, and that's meant for identification, that some, so the females can essentially find the males. The conditions also demand uh, that uh, if, we, if we want to spawn them, we have to mimic at least their natural environment. We can never reproduce the natural environment, of course, but we can mimic it. And we mimic it by selecting a media that will mimic the bottom of the pool. Uh, the media of choice, although there are several, uh, is uh, peat moss or sand of some sort. And, uh, and those media are put into a container, into the tank, and the fish perceive that as the bottom of the, of the pool, and they will lay their eggs uh, in that media. The media is then extracted, it's dried to a consistency that we think will allow development, and it's stored sometimes for many, many months until full development is reached at which point uh, we simply dump that media into a small tank and watch our fish uh, hatch. It's really a magical process, and it's one that if the 40-plus years, 47 years actually, in killifish, I'm still totally fascinated when that occurs. For the, uh, the Nothobranchius, how many, I guess, how many fry or how many eggs would you expect from you know, a spawn? You 
generally have hundreds of eggs. Okay. Uh, because our our methods of incubation are imperfect, and because we don't uh, continually dry and we wet the peat year after year after year, you'll typically get anywhere from 30 to 100 fry in a, in a typical hatch. But the fish will lay literally hundreds of eggs during, during the spawning sessions. And I guess for a lot of these species, because of the a lot of the hobbyists and the work you guys have done, you have pretty good numbers on in terms of how long they need to dry and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's sort of a colloquial knowledge that develops. It is highly sensitive to the storage uh, temperature. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's uh, lots of uh, studies out there in the scientific community about this, not so much because they're interested in propagating killifish, but because they can study embryology uh, and the effect of various environments on embryology. Uh, North Branca's gunthri, which is uh, one of the most common North Branca species, is also a very, very common lab animal. And they study not only uh, that uh, uh, the environmental effects on development, but they uh, these fish, uh, if you recall I mentioned before, uh, these fish only last a year. Well, actually what they do is that they stay very, very vital up until the last three weeks of their life, and then they age very, very rapidly, and they literally die of old age in a matter of weeks. And there's been many, many studies in the scientific community about that aging process and how it relates to other other animals and, and what uh, chemistry uh, cues there are that induce this very, very rapid aging process. So, so, uh, so it's, a, it's an animal that's well known in the scientific community, not for the obvious uh, reasons, but, uh, but for the other dynamics that go on in their, uh, in their development and their life cycle. So trying to figure out how to keep us all young, I guess, pretty much, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> So now I, I've also been familiar with through the Aquarium Society and, and, you know, working or talking with some of the Killy folks as well in, you know, our local Aquarium Society about what used to be, I guess, Rivulus marmoratus or Cryptolebius marmoratus. Can you tell, uh, tell us a little bit about that fish, why that's kind of a weird fish? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, it's a totally unique fish in the, in the technical sense of the word unique. It's a one-off. It's the, it's the only vertebrate that's... Uh, uh, that is self-reproducing clones, and that's how it reproduces. So, uh, so it's a total uh, uh, hermaphrodite, and the fish uh, includes both male and female uh, organs, uh, self-fertilizing, and uh, and the egg is fertilized uh, internally in the fish, and then deposited into the substrate, into plants or, or soil. It actually will deposit it anywhere. This is an adaptation. There are populations of this fish that develop males, um, uh, but, they're, but they're rare. Almost all of them are developed by this clone process. Uh, the fish, by the way, occurs in Florida. It's, uh, it's, uh, it inhabits a very, very difficult environment, so it's very difficult to collect. Uh, it basically in, inhabits the mangrove swamps and... Uh, um, and as a result, it's a, it's a difficult fish to, to collect. It also has some other very, very weird characteristics. It can literally live out of water for days and days at a time. And it's found, for example, in rotted logs. It's also been found in trees. Um, and it's often found in leaf litter. And when it's out of water for more than 8 or 12 hours, it actually uh, uh, changes the physical structure of its gills so that it can breathe oxygen directly from the air. And uh, once it gets back in the water, then that development is reversed, and, it, uh, and, it, uh, and the gill structure goes back to a normal aquatic form. 
a fascinating animal on many different levels. That is definitely. So going back to uh, to I guess the the larvae or the or the fry, the eggs and fry. Um, how, how would you raise the fry then? What's the what's the next step? Uh, yeah, the uh, the fry of most species are quite small. Uh, the, the fry of the of the uh, of the plant spawning species tends to be larger than the soil spawners. Um, the fry are all very very hardy uh, when they're born, uh, when they hatch. Uh, they are all equipped with teeth, so so they can feed on organisms that that, that are larger than themselves by nipping off pieces. So most species can be started with uh, newly hatched brine shrimp. There are some that are very, very small, a few, and they need infusoria or a micro life form uh, like that to get started. But but even those, if they're a few days, can be weaned onto uh, baby brine shrimp. They really need the living foods at the beginning. They can be weaned later on. After a month or so, they can start to be uh, weaned over to prepared foods, but they need living foods in the first month or so. Um, they're, they're put in small containers. Water is changed very, very often. Uh, they are very hardy fish, but they are susceptible to some diseases. And uh, as long as they're kept in very, very clean conditions, then they stay disease-free. Uh, grow, growth varies with the species. Some species grow very quickly. Others do not. Uh, the soil spawners will grow very rapidly and will be uh, ready to lay some eggs in anywhere up to six to eight weeks. After birth, the uh, the plant spawners take several months before they reach that stage. So, so the growth rates really are quite specific to the species in the species group. Wow, that's fascinating. So, I guess real. Uh, I was curious since a lot of these guys are doing them, you know, with sort of small population size. Is there any concern about maybe um, you know inbreeding or anything like that, or has that been looked at? Uh, yes, it it has been looked at, and it can be a concern. Uh, and it has become a concern in 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 some uh, few species. It generally is not. Um, what what we do find, and and one of the things that really confused that issue was that these fish do evolve even in your tanks. They're they're in very dynamic environments, so so they have very plastic uh, constituency that they can start changing, and they do change in our aquarium. So some of the some of the changes we've seen on some species that were attributed to inbreeding really weren't uh, attributable to that. Uh, by and large, we don't have inbreeding problems. And that's really uh, interesting considering that the source materials are generally very, very limited. We have several species that were only collected once or twice in a while and uh, just a handful of individuals and still persisting after generations, uh, decades, uh, without any significant uh, physical deformities or things of that nature. So, by and large, inbreeding is not a problem. Okay, that is fascinating. So, okay, now the, now the big question. Don't see these real often in, uh, in local aquarium stores, you know, maybe a couple here and there. Um, where can someone actually get these if they're interested in, in trying to work with killifish? Well, there's a number of places that you can get them, and, uh, and, and you won't find them, uh, as you observed, you won't find them in aquarium stores because they're just not burning commercial quantities, and, uh, and they do take a little extra care in the store environment. They can't be overcrowded and things like that, so, so most stores uh, are not interested. And when they do keep them, uh, sometimes they only offer males because the males uh, uh, have, have the color females are much, uh, much less colorful. So, uh, so it, they're not a good commercial uh, proposition. So the hobbyist has to look elsewhere. Um, uh, the best way uh, uh, today, there's many sources. 
the uh, the primary source uh, has always been other hobbyists. So uh, almost every large aquarium club has a few chili people that uh, can get someone started. Uh, there are about uh, uh, 30 affiliate clubs of the American Killifish Association that are in most major cities, and those are and those clubs are are, are dedicated entirely to killifish, and many many species can be gotten that way. And thirdly, today uh, on the internet there are people that commercially raise and sell killies through the mail, and uh, of course there's equipment and sources like that. Um, so, so it's not it's not overly difficult to to uh, get killifish, but you have to go out and get them, and they're not going to be presented to you at your local fish store. So, is it? I guess is it probably the best idea then to to join some of these clubs and and also get kind of more information as well? Or I'm yeah, guessing that's probably thing, the easiest. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the first thing to do is to do your research so that you understand what you're getting into. And, uh, and and once you've decided that you would like to try them, if you belong to a general aquarium society, I'm, uh, uh, I'm sure if you just ask, there'll be one or two hobbyists there. Um, uh, the best thing to do is to go to the AKA website. That's the largest international organization that's based here in the United States. It's uh, www.aka.org. And... Uh, and there'd be lists of affiliate clubs and what have you. Also, members of the AKA, and I'm not uh, uh, promoting membership uh, uh, specifically, but the members of the AKA uh, also have access to a, to a, uh, a uh, trade and sale uh, function uh, within the club, and they can buy fish that way. And if you just go on the Internet and type in killifish, you'll, you'll see several people that are selling killifish. Uh, so, so you have all of these sources, the local club, the affiliate club, if you're if you're close to one, um, uh, the AKA itself, or commercial sources through the internet. Buy both fish or eggs. Uh, uh, I recommend uh, uh, fish at the beginning because it's a different skill set to raise the eggs, to, uh, to incubate and raise the eggs. So I do recommend that people start with one of the more common killifish that are classified as beginner fish. That's where your research comes in. You really don't want to get involved with a fish that's considered difficult. You obviously have you know a, a huge amount of knowledge, and I know you're active with the Killifish Conservation Committee. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and, and also your, your own tanks? Are you specializing in maybe killies of concern as well? Uh, yes, uh, yes. Uh, I've uh, I do have uh, I do have a long history with killifish. I've been involved with the hobby uh, for, uh, as I said, some 47 years now, and I've um, I've been a, uh, involved with the American Killifish Association for much of that time. I also belong to several other associations, foreign ones, as well, uh, and and I currently serve as the as a conservation and species maintenance chairman of the AKA, and, and our and our charter is to uh, maintain certain core species of killifish within the hobby that are likely to be lost, and uh, and we form breeder teams all over the country, and that uh, uh, will consist of six or more people that maintain certain species of fish over a long-term basis. And, uh, and that does include endangered killifish uh, as well, and uh, it's, a, it's quite a large operation within the AKA. Uh, we've identified core species that are representative of the significant groups of uh, killifish as well as groups of endangered fish. And we, and we work with other organizations, some um, uh, colleges, universities, and conservation groups that are 
that are doing more or less the same thing. So, so we coordinate our efforts with them. And we also have an international group that we coordinate our efforts with the British Killifish Association and the, uh, and the Dutch Killifish Association. And we, we compare notes and sometimes exchange eggs on species that we're trying to maintain. Uh, myself, I've, uh, I, uh, I still have some, uh, some fish that uh, I just uh, have an affinity for for, for many, many years, and, uh, but a large part of my effort is involved in this uh, maintenance conservation issue. I've become particularly interested myself in North American killifish, uh, and, uh, and I've done a lot of work in, in that regard as well in the conservation of North American species. Uh, I work with the North American Native Fishers Association in that regard, and I, I run their outreach program, uh, which promotes conservation as well. Uh, so, so within my fish room, my my 60 some odd tanks, uh, I, I I've got several species uh, that are in the conservation program, and I've got two species right now that are endangered uh, that I am breeding as part of a larger effort with. Uh, conservation groups uh, that are specializing in those. So what is the future of the killifish hobby in your eyes? Well, there, there are some significant challenges um, that, that, that are taking place, I think, for all specialist groups, uh, including killifish. Uh, uh, one, uh, one thing that, uh, that concerns us greatly is uh, the advancing uh, average age of our group. There's just not enough younger people that are joining. And I think this is probably uh, so in specialist groups as well. Uh, our average age in the AK, for example, is over 50 years old, and that's not that's not a good sign. So we're launching a uh, a program now to promote the uh, uh, killifish at the local aquarium society level, in the hopes of drawing in younger people. We have a lot of competition out there. Uh, the entertainment competition is severe. Uh, organized sports and what have you. So. I think in general, uh, 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 the fish hobby in general, I think, is suffering from, from this kind of thing. Um, the second danger to the killifish hobby is the availability of, uh, of species. Uh, many countries have now enacted uh, uh, control of their uh, ecological resources, and as a result, they, they've in instituted administrative and, uh, and export controls that make it very, very difficult now to, to get fish from the wild. Uh, uh, the, the glory days where people went out and, and, uh, and did these collecting trips and brought back all kinds of exotic species is coming to an end. Uh, it's very expensive. Uh, it can be dangerous in many parts of the world. And the uh, countries are becoming uh, highly nationalistic in controlling their resources. Uh, and I have no argument with that, but it is a trend that will affect the importation of wild fish. Um, so, so as a result, the conservation of fish within the hobby is becoming a greater and greater concern as these uh, as these other sources uh, begin to decline. Uh, the uh, the third thing is the very trading of fish among hobbyists. For example, it's very very difficult now to import fish from Europe. There's lots of regulations and uh, and it's quite expensive. And even if you want to export to to Europe yourself, uh, you, you, you need all kinds of administrative permissions and licenses and, and fees to do so. Um, so it's becoming even difficult now to, to trade with hobbyists uh, in, in other countries. And I'm sure the sick people and the library people and catfish people, these people are all experiencing the same kind of difficulties. 
we're a little luckier uh, with killifish because we can trade eggs, and generally they are not very closely controlled. Uh, so, so we're able to uh, trade significant numbers of species with uh, foreign friends. Um, uh, still, we we will continue to be able to do that. Uh, so, so I, at least with respect to uh, species that are in the hobby, I think we're going to be maintain most of those. I see a, an overall decline in uh, in new species coming in over the years, and we really have to address this issue of the competition of other entertainment sources. Okay. I, I think, you know, I agree with you. Definitely, uh, the hobby is one, has a lot of different areas of competition and having been a hobbyist all, all my life as well, I, I see the need to get more younger folks involved with the hobby because of all the, the great things they can learn and also advance ecological issues and other things of importance. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I really want to thank you, Charlie, for your expertise and our producers, especially Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Any final thoughts, Charlie? I'm going to include the uh, websites that you mentioned and any additional ones you want to include on your uh, Aquarium Mania webpage. But did you have any final parting thoughts? Well, my only final thought is that the uh, this little subgroup of killifish is uh, probably got some of the most fascinating aquarium animals in the world and I encourage people who thought about it for years to try it to go ahead and try it. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised how easy they are to keep and how rewarding they are to keep and uh, I wish everyone good luck in doing that. Thanks very much again Charlie. appreciate all your time. Please be sure to check out Charlie Nunziata's webpages. The links will be on his Aquarium Mania bio page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. We'll put pictures up from this episode of Fish That Charlie Mentioned, and you can also ask questions or make comments. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. If you're over in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, please visit your local public aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and definitely consider getting immersed in the killifish hobby. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.